Let's read the word together, shall we? First Thessalonians is the book that we have been studying through now for several weeks. We continue in that study. Hopefully it has been an encouragement to you and will continue to be so. First Thessalonians chapter 2, we end the chapter today with several verses starting in verse 17. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, we'll read through verse 20. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Father, we pray now that as we have sung your word, as we have uh, read together your word, now we hear your word. And I pray that as this sermon progresses through these verses this morning, that it would not just be an exercise in talking about what happened sometime in the ancient past, but it would be something that we would bring up to today that we would begin to understand the the reality of spiritual combat, spiritual warfare that is going on all around us. I'm not talking about just outside these walls, Lord, but in these walls and in our own hearts as well. So, Father, I pray for um, the ability to take these things that I have studied, and I pray that you would help me to communicate them clearly Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us all, including myself, receptive hearts. Our ears would be open, that we would shake out the cobwebs, not only physically but spiritually, and that we would hear what you have to say to us, and that it would make eternal transformation changes in our own lives. We thank you, we praise you, and we look forward now to what you want to say through your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I studied this sermon this this last week, I thought about a lot of things. I thought about, okay, how do we communicate with the church some of the things that Paul is getting after? But then I began to think about certain people who may be among us but who do not really fully understand. Maybe you've never really studied it. You've never really heard it preached if you've gone to another church. But it may come, I, I was thinking to myself, as somewhat of a shock to you that everything going on around you, and just as I said in my prayer, I'm talking about everything that is going on in the world, 
and the things going on in the church, all of them have a very real spiritual dimension. One of the sobering facts about life and about this moment in life is not what is going on around you. That, parenthetically, you're trying to control, but you realize that you haven't done a very good job of controlling it. But again, it's what's going on inside of you that for you who are followers of Jesus Christ that you can do something about. This passage reminds us that all humans have a supernatural enemy whose aim is to use both, now get this, pain and pleasure to make us blind and I'm going to use a word here. We didn't allow this word in our household growing up. The S word. Stupid. That simply doesn't mean ignorant. It means that you've been informed, informed, but you just don't act on it. Not only does Satan want to make us blind and stupid and miserable, he wants to do it forever. And in the context of Paul's great desire to be with the believers in Thessalonica, he explains to them, just in a phrase, why he has not been able to come and be with them. Now, when you first look at this, at first glance, this almost seems like what, what I would call a throwaway scripture, a throwaway verse or, or, or phrase in the middle of all of this scripture, and it is not. It is a reality. We, we have to be careful, and I'll by the way, we're not going to do an in-depth study of everything about the devil today, but we are going to do some things that hopefully will correct some misconceptions that you have had in the past. One of those goes back, this dates me a little bit, and it'll date some of you in the audience, and probably some of you have never heard of this comedian named Flip Wilson. Do you remember Flip Wilson? In one of his characters, I, I see that blank look on some of your faces. You don't know who Flip Wilson is. But he had one of these characters. Her name was Geraldine, and she was always getting, her, getting herself into messes. And what was her, her classic response when somebody would confront her? The devil made me do it. Now, we're not going there. But we need to see for sure that... Satan, the enemy of our souls, is a reality. So we're going to do this. You see on your outline, three different movements we're going to go through. Paul's desire to be with the church and make some applications, and we're going to expand, and we're going to talk about the place of the enemy of our souls uh, at just a little bit and what he wants to do, I think, in these days. So let's go first to verses 17 through 18a. I've, I've entitled these verses, Out of Sight, but definitely not Out of Mind. That's the way it was for the Apostle Paul. He was with this little group of believers for three weeks, and then he had to exit because of pressure. Opposition, persecution drove him out, and he ached to be with them again. Now, this is important, church. It's important for me. It's important for you. I saw on the news this last week, I think I shared with you several weeks ago that we had been without a TV for about a month and we weren't able to watch the news. And some of you would say, oh, that's bad. It was very, very good. We weren't nearly as depressed as we 
were, we realized, when we watched the news. But we've started watching some, not all, some of the news. We've tried to be very selective. But I saw this interesting. It, it was very, it, it, just a little short piece. It was about Major League Baseball starting. Did any of you see that? Of course, I listened with, with, with great interest. I thought, man, that's great. But here were the following changes. Distancing in the dugout. They've enlarged the dugout so that they can do distancing. I'm not sure what all that looks like, but they've done that. Now, here was something, uh, those of you who've played baseball, th this would break your heart, but no spitting. That means no chewing, no chewing tobacco. But that, that's not a big deal for me, but the sunflower seeds, they can't even chew sunflower seeds and spit them. How many of you like to, anyway, I thought, now that just breaks my heart. And then I saw this, and it made me think of an earlier conversation several months ago. We had right here among the staff, it was kind of a joke, but we had the conversation, there will be no fans in the audience, in, 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 in the whole stadium, but it's going to be cardboard cutouts. And there's going to be canned noise, audience participation. And I thought to myself, we joked about that early on when this thing hit. It's kind of a parable, perhaps, of the Christian life. Because the Christian life is not about isolation. It's not meant to be lived in isolation. I've talked to people in the last several months who have felt very, very lonely. And I'm glad that we have these relational circles within our church so that people are calling people so that they don't feel absolutely forsaken, but there's still this feel of loneliness. And the Christian life is not supposed to be that. Christians are meant to be in each other's lives. Boy, I have had conversations in the last couple of weeks all over the map with this. Somebody sent me, in fact, several somebodies sent me uh, a link to a, um, a statement by Grace Community Church in California, John MacArthur's church. And so I read that with great interest. I reread it. I looked at it. I, I, I thought to myself, the elders and John MacArthur, they are responding, and they did so with a great deal of grace. I, I encourage you to look at it and read it, because as you know, the governor of California has basically shut down churches. And John MacArthur said, we respectfully disagree with what you're telling us to do, we feel that we must obey Christ rather than the governing authorities in this particular area, and so we plan on meeting. I just heard today that they were going to, or they threatened to, we'll see what happened today, shut off power to his church facilities if they chose to meet. Now, th that's, that's one side of the issue. It, and I, 
If you ask me where on the spectrum that I would personally fall, I think it would be somewhere over toward where John MacArthur has, has fallen. But let me tell you the story of another church back in my home state of, of Arkansas. It's my, the church that my kids go to, pastored by a good friend. He's retired now, uh, but still a part of the church, Bill Eliff. They're not under a mandate to shut their church down, but guess what? They did. And the reason they did it when they didn't have to was because one of their pastors had tested positive for coronavirus and had been around other staff members during the week, and they determined that it would be in the best interest of the church family to not assemble corporately, personally, face-to-face with each other. Now, I ask you, which view is right? We're going to be talking more later, maybe not even later on today, though we may get to it a little bit more about this. Which one is right? Or is that really the issue. If you were going to to have to sit down and address the leaders from both churches, what would you say? Is it possible for two Christians who love Jesus, who both are in the Word, to come up with different views about which one is right and which one is wrong? Is that a possibility? That's why it's not on the screen, but I was thinking of uh, Paul's letter to the Philippian church that, that is called the Epistle of Joy. And if you read it carefully, there's a lot of joy going on here in First Thessalonians. But if you read carefully uh, through the, the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church, he calls out two sisters, co-workers, he calls them. Do you remember that? Some of you in chapter 4? Where in the, I just can't imagine the, the, the reading of the letter that's going on. The church at Philippi, and they were, they were house churches, you know, and so they were all huddled together there. And then he comes, not to chapter four, they didn't have chapter and verse divisions, but he comes to whoever was reading the letter, that portion of the letter, and all of a sudden it says, I urge Euodia and Syntyche, Paraphrase, to work out their differences and live together in harmony. Now, folks, while there are three things going on in this passage, and the first thing we're talking about is the, the unity, the importance of seeing people face to face, which is of vital importance, which is Paul's desire, and it is a gospel-centered desire because he wanted to see how they were doing Boy, this hit me like a ton of bricks this last week. Paul ached to know how the church was doing. I, I really, I have to confess to you that I've been asked that church more during the last couple of months than I have in, in previous days. And it's a pretty common thing. Uh, pastors get together or I meet somebody and they find out I'm the pastor at Heritage Baptist Church, the teaching pastor. And their, one of their first questions is, how's the church? 
I, I just, I'm just going to confess, I repent because how I normally answer that is with attendance and finances. I, I, I was just thinking back, how many times have I said, well, you know, we, we've started back church and our attendance is holding pretty well, our finances are really good, our people are being generous during these difficult days. And all of a sudden, I realized that as I was reading through 1 Thessalonians, and Paul's ache was to be with his brothers and sisters to get a feel for how they're doing, it has nothing to do with attendance. Now, they just assumed that everybody who could be was in attendance. Okay, that was one assumption. But it had to do with something else. Paul says it here, and here's a big word that we'll, we're just going to describe, for this is the will of God. This is what Paul was wanting to check on. He's wanting to know how their relationship with God was going. Are you guys walking in holiness? How's it going between you and God? Are you still putting away your idols? You know, he, he was only with them, like I said, for three weeks. Were they still coming out of idolatry and loving the Lord? Were they growing in holiness? The second desire that he had, and this sounds a little bit like the great commandment, doesn't it? Now, concerning brotherly love, he says later on, you have no need for anyone to write anything to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That's why I had this incredible sense of concern that you see in chapter 3. And then, then he sent Timothy. When we could stand it no longer, he says, we sent Timothy to check in on you so that we could know how you were doing. So church, I want to just stop right now in the midst of everything that is going on in your life. Apologize to you for how I've responded in the past and ask you, how are you doing? Students, how are you doing? Getting ready to go back to school, right? Or are you? Adults, how are you doing? How are you doing in your relationship, your walk with the Lord? Are you growing in sanctification? Are you having your quiet time? So you can take in God's Word and make those little changes, the tweaks along the way as you grow in holiness and sanctification? How are you doing in your relationship with other people? Paul was concerned about that. I need to be concerned about it. So do you. And so do you in the audience, whether you're in the overflow or the masked only or at home or watching this later on. I, I want you to just, just get a feel that you, we're all together. We need to ask and answer those questions. Now let's move on, because this was Paul's heart, but something happened, and he puts this statement in here. And so I, I just thought of an old, uh, an old saying, give the devil his due. You know what that means, don't you? You say that about a person who is just incredibly bad, a wicked, evil person, or whatever, and at least they do one thing good, so you've got to give the devil his due. Well, let's do, as Paul does, give the devil his due. Last week I shared with you, I remember this. I don't know if you do. But I shared with you that while it looks like most activity is happening up here, what's the reality? Where's most of the activity happening? 
right there. And, and I shared this with you last week. We looked at Matthew 13, 19, the, the parable of the sower. By the way, the parable of the sower is absolutely essential for you understanding the implications of the gospel. And, and so we know this, that when the gospel is preached, look at this, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, no matter if you're physically present or you're in another room or you're in your home, when you hear the word of your kingdom and you do not understand it, you say, man, I just don't get it. Now, I don't know if that's totally active or if that's passive, but you just don't get it. There is a spiritual reality going on right now. evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And you thought all along, it's just because people don't get it, or they just don't understand, or they don't have the capacity. I'm telling you what, if you could put on spiritual, you ever been to a movie where you get 3D glasses? And, and, and you're watching the, the movie and it, something's coming at you and you dodge because it looks so real. If you could put on spiritual 3D glasses, you would be amazed at what is going on right now, right here. You just look over beside you. You don't see anything, do you? Chances are the devil, one of his demons anyway, sitting right beside you. Now, don't look at your wife or your husband. And See, this was a real concern for Paul. This is not a throwaway statement. I wanted to come to you, but there was a hindrance. Now, what is absolutely fascinating, we find other places where there are hindrances in what Paul wanted to accomplish. And in those places, it says the Spirit prevented me to go into this place or that place and preach, but right here, he is giving credence to the reality of spiritual warfare. Now, what was Paul's desire? What did he want to know about the church? What does God want for you, church heritage? For you to grow in sanctification, holiness, your relationship with the Lord, and for your walk with other believers. Later on in chapter 3, we're going to come back. This, this is not an exhaustive view of, of the devil and how he came about and all the rest of that. What I'm going to do today, though, is I'm going to give you a resume, the devil's resume, okay? Because later on, we're going to come back in chapter 3, and he mentions the tempter. Well, just look at it. You've got your Bibles open still, don't you, or your smart device? He said, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear. Look at this, that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. We read something about that just a few minutes ago. Paul was concerned for these new believers. And it's instructive for us. Okay, so what does it look like? Let's just step back. Again, we're going to come back to, to look at this a little bit more. But, but let me just say this up front. I'll make a couple of, of overall statements for those of you who have not really done in-depth studies. Of, I'm not even sure what you'd call that, devilology. 
None of the biblical authors, Old Testament or New Testament, Jesus doesn't, Paul doesn't, they never try to convince you that there is a devil. They just simply assume it. There's another thing that I want to say right up front that you need to know. The devil is not all-powerful. Have you got that? That, that, that is a big, I, I think that in Christendom, at least in Western culture, there is this huge dualism thing going on that really is from another kind of religion where God and the devil or evil are equal but opposite forces. That is not the case. Satan is not all-powerful because only God is sovereign and ultimately in control. But I do want you to know something, that the devil is not only active, but he is a formidable opponent. Let's look at this enemy that we've got. I'm just going to throw up a couple of uh, verses to you, a couple of things on the screen that you're going to see, and we'll talk about this. This is the case for who the Bible calls this great dragon was thrown down. He refers to him as the ancient serpent. We're going to come back to that in just a second. But where is he pointing back to, the ancient serpent? Where is he pointing back to? Eden. That's right. Who is called. Here are his names. This is a part of his resume where we get his names, okay? The great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, which means a little bit later on, the accuser, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Now, latch on to that because that's important. His angels were thrown down with him for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So, those are his names, all right? Let's look at some of his titles, not just his names, but his titles. There are several verses along the way here, and I've pulled out those specific portions of Scripture that, that give a little bit of his titles, and you can tell a lot from a person's titles. Now, again, watch this. You just saw that he deceives the whole world, but watch this. The ruler of this world. It's one of his titles. In their case, the God of this world or of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Then he, in Ephesians, talks about the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So you've got his names, you've got his titles. Let's go on to his, we're doing a resume of the devil. This is his work experience, all right? Now, this is an incredible statement out of Luke chapter 4. You remember the story of the temptation? Jesus is taken by Satan up to a high mountain, it says, and he has shown in a moment all of the kingdoms of the world. And in Luke's gospel, it says something that is absolutely stunning. Satan says, all of the kingdoms of the worlds have been delivered to me. Now, there is a debate. Later on, he, he's called a liar. Was Satan lying? 
are telling the truth. Thank you, Vicki. Exactly right. It was a half-truth. You know, a half-truth paraded as a whole truth is an untruth. So in one very real sense, all of the kingdoms of the world have been delivered over to Satan. Now I want you to, I, I just want that to sink in for a minute. Is that, is that sinking in? What does that mean, all of the kingdoms of the world? That was a word, word that they used back then. That means that all earthly kingdoms, all nations, all government systems, and then he goes on, as well as every lost person is basically owned by the devil. Those are, those are stunning statements. That's his work experience. If nothing else, folks, listen to what this means for us who are Christians. This means that according to the world system, the deck is stacked against us. Now, we all know, and we're not going to say it today, we'll come back to it. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We know all of those things. But I want you to see the stunning reality that all of the kingdoms, all of the governments are basically owned by Satan. You know, one of the things that that means, now listen to me very carefully. I'm going to put something before the statement that I want to make. Register to vote. People have said this is the most important election the United States has ever faced. I don't know about that. All elections are important, and when we live in a country, in a culture that gives us the freedom and the liberty to do what we need to do, we need to practice Christ Christian citizenship. But now let me make this statement. With that said, and you need to vote, the job of the church will never be to reform our government. I looked and looked and looked over and over again the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts all through the New Testament. The job of the church is to take the gospel so that transformation might happen in people and then those people in turn change their world around them. I'll tell you, we would be dead in the water if we, as a church, you know, we minister to Tur in Turkey, if our goal was the same as some in our country, was to go and reform the government of Turkey. It's not our goal. It's not Orhan's goal. It's to preach the gospel and see God do a work of transformation to make a new nation among those. Let's go on with the resume. Okay, we've got his name, we've got his titles, we've got his work experience. Now, here is his job description, and this is where it boils down and gets down to brass tacks with you and with me. He is the archetype of evil. He is the father of lies. He is a liar. He's a father of deception. He's the father of murder. By the way, when did the first murder take place? 
in the book of Genesis. Cain and Abel. I've said before that that was the first murder. I really think that the first murder went back to the deception and the lie when Adam and Eve told that they would not die, and yet they did. Not physically immediately, but they died spiritually. Listen, folks, his goal is never good. He's seeking someone to devour. Now, Peter writes that to Christians, and so that is true. We know that the enemy holds captive those who are not yet believers in Jesus Christ, but he is seeking someone in this place to devour today. Another part of his job description, he attacks individual believers. He attacked Simon. Jesus said he's asked permission. Remember, remember he's not all-powerful. Satan is on a leash. He has to get permission before he can attack, but that's his goal is to attack individual believers. If you think that somehow this message is for someone sitting next to you or over there, Satan is seeking to devour you at this very moment. He's seeking permission to sift you. He also attacks churches. Look at this. He attacked the church at Smyrna, throwing people into prison, and he will attack leaders. Please get that down. No wonder. Because the leaders are responsible for checking up on how the church is doing. And that's why he said, that's why I wanted to know about you. Because somehow, if the tempter had come and tempted you, and our labor would have been in vain. This is a very, very real concern. Let me just say this too. That he will permeate a church with his own doctrines to pull our thoughts away from devotion and purity to Jesus Christ. And folks, when he shows up, he is not going to show up. You remember a minute ago when he's described as a dragon and a serpent? Don't expect Satan to show up as a scaly dragon straight out of Lord of the Rings or something like that or as a snake slithering down the aisle. No, he's going to disguise himself as an angel of light, and so will his ministers in order to deceive. Now, this is consistent. This is consistent with what Jesus taught. We're going to talk about after this, the last part of it, looking forward to Christ's return and how we are to grapple with all of that. What was it that Jesus prayed for us when he prayed the high priestly prayer in John 17? Isn't it interesting that he prays these three things? Don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Same heart as the apostle Paul. Secondly, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And then thirdly, This is huge, folks, that they all 
may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Have you thought about what is going on in the world right now? And there, there's a lot more than the pandemic and the racial tensions. You, we, we've got a very limited point of view if we think that's all that's going on, but that is what is getting all of the press. And it is important. My estimate, I shared this with you a few weeks ago, they don't create anything. They just reveal what's there. But one of my great concerns in the life of the church is that the enemy, now the sanctification and the truth, your relationship with God, and one of the ways that you're going to see how well that is doing by looking at the horizontal, how well are you doing in your relationships with other Christians? Seems to me that Satan could be the most active. Remember I mentioned the two different churches, which one's right, which one's wrong? Is that really the issue? Or is the issue coming together? Now, there are rights and wrongs, okay? I'm not saying that there aren't. We went through a whole series on foundations. What is the gospel? Who is Jesus? who is the Father. We, we go to the mat for those kinds of things, but in these kinds of issues, please hear me. Where brothers and sisters divide over the issue of masks, the masks are secondary to what is going on in the heart of individual believers as they speak of these things. And I'm talking about speaking face-to-face. -face. I'm talking about speaking in other venues as the case may be. But when Paul uses a term like there is a very real possibility that the enemy of our souls could hinder hindered him from going and checking up on them. And then he says later on that the tempter tempted you and we might have run in vain. We have a very real adversary that we need to understand what we need to do about it. And that leads me to the last point. Verses 19 and 20, Paul says this in the context of looking forward to Christ's return. How many of you have said, younger as well as older, Man, with all that's going on, I can't wait till Jesus comes again. Why are you looking forward to that? Because he's going to fix all this mess. He's going to make all the wrongs right. Somebody said, work for the Lord. The retirement plan is out of this world. And I agree with that. So we know, and we're going to come back to this, that, that the second coming of Christ was a great motivator to the Apostle Paul. 
And when he comes back, Paul's not going to be looking to how many churches he planted, how many books he has written, his accomplishments, even his martyrdom. What he's going to be looking at is the church. That's his legacy. That's our legacy as well. And so if the Lord is coming back and he's going to set everything straight then, why don't we start now? Let me give you three verses. You write these down. Talk about these over lunch today or maybe later on today. There are three things that I think could go a long way for us being us, church, being a hope and a joy and a crown of blessing. Hebrews 13 says this, exhort one another every day. Seek to live a life of exhortation as long as we have the time, as long as it's called today so that we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's a second thing, and all of these are hard attitudes. You see that I didn't come down on one side or the other, the mask or the social distancing or any of the other issues that are out there, the, 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 all of them because it starts with a heart, and we'll get the heart right first, and then we'll take care of all of the rest of that. And so here's what Paul says, and, and he says it in a number of different places in different ways. He's basically talking about putting off the old self, putting it aside, putting on the, the, the new self. Don't live in your former manner of life, but live in that manner of life that was created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then he piggybacks on that with 1 Peter chapter 1, as obedient children, do not be conformed, and I included this because of this word, in the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. I want you to bow your heads with me for just a few moments. Paul is saying, he's saying to believers, to followers of Christ. But I always come back to this, that the gospel is for us. We preach the gospel to ourselves every day, that's obvious. But there is also a part of the gospel that is for the initial act of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit reveals to you that you've sinned against a holy God, you've broken his commandments, all of his moral law. So therefore, he, he, he further reveals to you that you're under his just judgment. He's not unfair. His justice is good and perfect and righteous. But he offers a way to salvation so that you don't have to stand under condemnation. And that's by believing in Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross. Believing that he died for you, sinner. Receiving him as a person into your life so that he begins that work of transformation in you. And if you've never taken that step today, I urge you, I beg you, please take that step. Father, we thank you and praise you now that you have called us to yourself. I pray that many of us in this room have already responded to you.
And I thank you for your word that reminds us of the things that the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul held so dearly that he wanted for us so desperately. I pray that we would recognize the work of the enemy in militating against all of these good things, our sanctification, our walk with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we would grow to demonstrate to the outside world that we are followers of Jesus, and they'll know it by our love for one another. Thank you, Lord, that we get a chance to worship together. What an incredible privilege. We pray that we would take it to heart and live it out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.